If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Begin reading at verse 1. This is the holy and inspired word of God. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths." As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that he might bless this word to us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you give us hearts to receive your word, and that this word then might bear fruit in our lives as we have our eyes fixed upon our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we anticipate and look forward to his return to judge the living and the dead. May we see our lives at present in light of that great future that we might then be found faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the last uh, last chapter of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Uh, But more than that, it, it is in some sense also the last chapter of Paul's own life. The Apostle Paul, who had labored hard for the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, that he has died and he has been raised, that he is today at the right hand of God in heaven, that he is coming again. For that message, the Apostle Paul suffered much and endured much and labored hard that it might go forth. And now as the Apostle Paul expects his departure to be soon, as his life is being poured out like a drink offering, and soon to that cup of offering to be fully um, poured out in death, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy this final chapter. And you might ask this question, what is this final chapter and this final book meant to, um, how is this final chapter meant to impact Timothy? What is the effect of this chapter to be upon Timothy, and not only Timothy, but upon the church, including us here at Messiah's Reformed Fellowship? Well, there's a number of things you could get at to understand what that effect might be, but I think you could say that the effect of this chapter that we've just read a portion of is meant to put on our lips this song, lead on, O King Eternal, we follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning, where'er thy face appears, thy cross is lifted o'er us, we journey in its light, the crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. It's a song of great confidence. It's a song in which we are recognizing that there is things to do. There is a conquest ahead. But at the end of that is a crown, as Paul presents before us here, even 
a crown of righteousness. And so the main theme I want us to think upon from this chapter is simply that the crown awaits the conquest. And we have four points uh, to reflect upon. First, our eyes are on the king. Secondly, we are to be evangelists of the king. Thirdly, we are to give everything for the king. And then thirdly, the exaltation in the king. So eyes on the king, evangelists, everything for the king, and exaltation in the king as we think upon these eight verses. So first, eyes on the king. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Paul begins this exhortation to Timothy with this charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And Jesus is presented here as the one who is king. He is the ruler. He is the one whose opinion and whose judgments ultimately matter. It's the king who would execute judgments. And Peter, as he charges Timothy, first directs his gaze to Christ. He first directs the gaze of the church, the eyes of the church, to her king. And so the question to you is, as you live the Christian life, where are your eyes fixed? Where are your eyes looking toward? Paul directs our eyes to the king and calls us to set our minds and our hearts and our lives upon him as the one who will appear in great glory. This was always true of God's people, even in the Old Testament. I think of Simeon as uh, the gospel account of Jesus' life opens up in Luke, and Jesus is brought to the temple, and this um, faithful priest, Simeon, or rather a faithful man in Jerusalem, Simeon, was described by Luke as righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. It had been revealed to Simeon that he would not die until his eyes saw the promised Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And the Christ Jesus is presented to him in the temple. And he takes the child up into his arms and blesses God and says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation they have, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is summing up what a faithful Old Testament believer was to be like, one waiting for the consolation of Israel, one whose eyes were looking not into the immediate present only, but who looked forward, who saw something on the horizon. And Simeon saw with his own eyes the Christ, the Savior. The church's eyes, even today, are fixed upon their king who is to come again. The king who is to appear, King Jesus, in great glory. Like Peter, when he went out of the boat to see Jesus walking on the water, and Jesus and Peter is walking on the water looking to Jesus, right? But the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks to the wind around him, he begins to sink and he cries out, save me. And of course, Christ does save him. And Jesus then responds by saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt, right? It's a picture in some sense of the church's call to keep our eyes on Jesus and specifically our eyes on him who is king and our great ruler. The church has no power. The church has no influence. The church has no chance of standing once our eyes are directed away from Christ. But with our eyes on Christ, the church has great power in this world. The church 
has great power to fulfill its calling, to, to fulfill its ministry. So I, Paul, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He brings the church, he brings Timothy into the presence of God, there with their eyes on the one who is to judge the living and the dead. He then calls Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And so our eyes are to be fixed upon our king, King Jesus, and especially upon what is to come, his second coming. Notice what Paul says, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy is to see his calling in the light of the fact that his work he will have to give an account for before King Jesus. As he works out his, his calling, as he carries it out, as Paul charges him, he is to recognize that it's to King Jesus that he will ultimately give an account. But more than that, it also provides the right context for understanding his ministry to preach the gospel. He is to preach the gospel in light of the fact that Christ will appear and he will bring with him the fullness of his kingdom. Timothy is to always be aware of whose service he is in. And so too, with our eyes on King Jesus, we are to be aware of whose service we are in. We're servants and soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we work and we labor and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with our eyes fixed upon him and in the light of that great future when Christ comes again he appears in great glory and brings with him the fullness of his salvation. That's what the kingdom stands for. The kingdom is the all-embracing work of God's salvation. It began with Christ's first coming. It will be consummated at his return. The coming of the kingdom brings redemption in its fullness for God's people. And it brings judgment upon God's enemy. It is a great day that is coming. And therefore, as we are called to proclaim Christ and him crucified to the world, we do so with a strong consciousness of this great future, with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. With your eyes there, there is great strength for the Christian life. But when our eyes are diverted from that, we sink and we fall. But with our eyes fixed upon that great day, we labor, we wait for the consolation, and we draw great strength as God will uh, bring about on the day when Christ comes to make everything right, to judge the living and the dead, to exercise perfect justice. And while his people may, as our eyes are fixed there, endure injustices, may endure hardships and persecutions as such seasons come upon the life of the church, we endure all of them with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, knowing that he is coming. Our exaltation, our glory is found with him and his arrival. And therefore we wait and therefore we labor, therefore we proclaim Christ and wait for him to lift us up. And so firstly then, as we um, engage in the conquests, awaiting a crown, uh, we are to have our eyes fixed on our king. Secondly, as our eyes are fixed upon the king, we are to be evangelists of the king. We are to be those who herald and proclaim the good news. And we've said this before, some of us, as myself included, as a minister of God's word, is officially called to this ministry of proclaiming Christ, of heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. But all of us partake of that ministry as well. 
um, part of the work of the, pre- of the preacher and the pastor and the minister is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip you for this same work. And so while there's not always a direct line to us in speaking about Timothy's calling and, and ourselves, there is still implications for us, all called to be centered upon the word, to be concerned uh, first and foremost about the word of God and it going forth as we live it out, as we proclaim it with our lips. And so uh, Timothy then, in the presence of God, is charged with these words in verse 2. As an evangelist, preach the word, herald the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul gives him five exhortations here. This charge has has five points to it. But the first charge... Preach the word is the main charge. Everything else flows from that reality. And it reminds Timothy that the ministry of the church, the work of the church, is centered upon the word. It's the core principle of the work of the church. You lose the word, you lose everything, right? Just in the same way, if our eyes are off of Christ, there's weakness. And if we lose the word, there's weakness. There's nothing that the church ultimately has. But the church's calling in this world is first and foremost, preach the word. And that word, of course, is the word from God. It's the good news of the gospel that has been entrusted to the church and that has passed down from generation to generation as Timothy was to entrust this message to faithful men who then would teach others. It's the same message that, that Paul proclaimed, that Timothy proclaimed, and has come down even to us. And therefore, is our responsibility today to preach that word. It is the most central service of the church to herald the gospel, to be heralds of good tidings, of great joy for all people. That is what the church is to be about. Now, of course, as we think about what it means to preach the word, it's not isolated because it is a word that pertains to a new creation and God making all things new. Right, that word is accompanied with love and acts of mercy and grace. Um, but at the heart of the church's ministry is to proclaim this word. Because this word is the very word of God. It's the power of God for salvation. It's not just the words of any man. It is the word of God. It's a message that God has brought into our bleak and dark world. It's a message of light that is to shine in the darkness. And that message then is to be proclaimed and shine and is to be shine is to shine out from the church. Now Satan, as he's going to go on to say, show us here, uh, is going to desire with all of his strength and all of his powers and all of his tactics to hide away that light and to keep us from seeing that light and not walking in it. As people come with itching ears and desiring other teachings and other words and other so-called truths, but the church is to be focused upon preaching the word as ambassadors. It's what Noah did to a wicked generation. It's what Jonah did to a wicked city. It's what John the Baptist did out in the wilderness. It's what the, uh, the demoniac who was healed by Jesus did as he runs into the city to proclaim who healed him. It's what Paul did all throughout his ministry. It's what the, the apostles did, Philip, the evangelist, Peter in Caesarea. They went out and preached the word. And so to today, that same work continues. And we're called to take up that mantle. And we're called to be serious about heralding 
the good news, heralding good tidings. And as such, we are to be ready in season and out of season, times of ease and times of difficulty, when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. There's opportunities for the word to go forth, especially for the minister of God's word, for Timothy, but also for all of us to be ready in season and out. And with this word to reprove, rebuke, and admonish, right? All of those things, right, reproving, rebuking, and admonishing are not according to the preacher's preferences or the preacher's opinions, but it's by the word. Reprove according to what the word requires and rebuke according to what the word requires and admonish according to what the word calls us to. It's the word that is at the center of all of these things. It's how Christ rules and governs us. And we are to do so, as Paul says, with all long-suffering and with most painstaking teaching. Uh, Not merely just patience and not merely just teaching, but patience and teaching, right? Not just being patient and never changing anything, but also not just teaching without patience, right? It's, it's, It's a wonderful combination here. Patient teaching as the word goes out in God's church, even as Christ himself is wonderfully patient with us, right? Christ rules us by his word and his spirit, And we're slow, and even in this life, we make but a small beginning in godliness and holiness. Christ is patient with us. And therefore, as we proclaim the word to one another, encouraging each other, to those lost, our neighbors, to our families, we have to do so with patience and trusting in the Lord. And the reason, Timothy, is then to carry out the work as an evangelist of the king, a herald of the king, is, as verse 3 and 4 tells us, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, right? So Timothy and we ourselves here are to be centered upon this word because all around us there will be those itching for different truths and never being satisfied and desiring um, further ideas and further opinions. But in the midst of that chaos in which opinions change every day, in the midst of of that confusion in which there's never anything solid and true, we are to hold fast and to proclaim the truth. Again, in a world that in which we find ourselves all the more today, at least somewhat in Paul's day, the idea was the truth is out there somewhere um, and we have to discover it. And there were all these false um, uh, expeditions to try finding the truth with all the philosophers and whatnot. But today we've come to a point where we've simply just acknowledged falsely that there is no truth. And your truth is your truth. And it may be different from somebody else's truth, but you ought to follow your truth, right? It's the itching ears of dis- you can hear whatever you want. You get into these, um, uh, into these bubbles on social media where you hear what you want to hear, right? And, and some, to some degree, those are fine. But we find itch, our ears itched. We find people saying what we want them to hear. And rather than going after that, Paul is calling Timothy and the church to herald the truth and to be about the truth because it comes from God. And so, therefore, we are to be evangelists of the king. Thirdly, as Paul says, we are to give everything for the king. Verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
There's something really important here, I think, for us and for our day. And reflected in Paul's words is a strong sense of duty. This is what you are called to, Timothy. Now, again, Paul has written already, and Paul was sensitive to Timothy. Um, Paul encouraged Timothy not to be fearful, not to be timid. He reminded Timothy earlier in this letter about the power of God that's at work for you and sustaining you for this calling. But at this moment, Paul is simply reminding Timothy and exhorting Timothy to his duty. You know, there's no mention here, Timothy, do the work, fulfill your ministry um, if you feel like it or if it satisfies you. These are kind of categories, I think, that are more modern. Um, Do I feel satisfied by this work? Do I feel fulfilled? And there's something to those things. I'm not completely downplaying them, but think about the way Paul exhorts Timothy, even as a father or a son. Fulfill your ministry, no matter what it might cost you, no matter how you might feel, no matter how you might be, what you might be going through for the sake of, fulfill your ministry. This is your duty. The church and we ourselves need to recover a sense of duty, a sense of not merely going by my feelings and going because our feelings are constantly changing and sometimes our feelings are for the right thing and that's great, but other times our feelings are not and our emotions are kind of all over the place, but we have a duty to do. And therefore, to the church, be sober-minded. If the Lord calls you, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fulfill your ministry. That is your duty. And therefore, behind this calling, behind the duty that we have, is this notion that we are to give everything for the king. Right? This calling that Timothy has, behind it stands this idea that you are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Behind this idea is the idea that you have to give everything for the king who gave everything for you, who laid down his life for you. What did Jesus hold back? And now by the spirit of Christ at work in us, with hearts of gratitude, we lay it all at his feet, everything for the king, and we do our duty. We fulfill the ministry, the work that God has given to each of us, the callings that we have, fulfill your Callings fulfill your ministry. Give everything to King Jesus. And as we regain this mentality, we will find ourselves strengthened in the work that he has called us to do. Let us do the work that God has called us to do. And let us be reminded of everything that God has given us. And while we could never repay God for anything, yet, With hearts of gratitude, we too fulfill our ministries. And fourthly then, we find the exaltation. As Paul charges Timothy, right? At the baseline of it, the summary, the the, the peak of it, fulfill your ministry, do your duty. Paul gives his own life as a kind of example of where such a charge, if it's faithfully um, fulfilled, where it leads to. Where does such a life lead to? As we said, giving everything for the king. Where does such a life lead to? Well, at present, 
It may, it doesn't always have to, but it may for God's people lead into hardships. It may lead into persecution, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And therefore, as Paul said earlier, if we endure with him, we will reign with him. If we die with him, we will live with him. And so Paul then shows his own life in verses 6 through 8 as a sort of example of one who makes this confession of faith, who walks by the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And he shows us that such a life of giving everything for the king, such a conquest, has awaiting a crown. That Paul's life does not end in tragedy, but it ends in great, great glory. Right? Notice what Paul says, reflecting on his past, his present, and then what is to come in his own life. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. That's what Paul is experiencing in the present. And what a wonderful, powerful way to speak about his death as a drink offering. Right? Somebody on the outside might look at Paul. He's in chains, and he's about to die for somebody who was crucified um, some years prior. And they would look and they would pity him. They would look and they would see, well, what is wrong with this man? But Paul, by faith, trusting in God's word, speaks of his death as a drink offering. Well, a drink offering was offered up to God. He saw his life in relationship to God. It was the all-defining thing for him. It's why earlier in the letter, he speaks of himself not as a prisoner of Rome, though he's in chains by Roman officials, but Christ's prisoner. He is the prisoner of the Lord. Because he's there, because Christ put him there. And so to his life, as, it's, as it ebbs out from him, as it's poured out upon the ground, it is a drink offering to the Lord. It's a life dedicated to the Lord in everything. Nothing held back. The cup of Paul's life, all of its content, poured out. And over time, it will be emptied in death. And that's what Paul is is explaining. He's explaining himself as one who has lived the kind of life that he calls Timothy to. One in whose life was given wholly to King Jesus. Now, we often can give our lives to things, and people all the time give give their lives to things. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, influence, the pursuit of things, material possessions, right? But those things, as we offer our lives to them, have no future, Right? You can offer your life to all the things in this world to obtain it. Give, give of yourself. You can sacrifice for them. But ultimately, in the end, that's where, that's where your life ends. Drawn out on the ground, poured out, and nothing left. But Paul shows us how a life that is poured out as a drink offering to the Lord does not end there. It's not a life of tragedy and of emptiness in the end, but it is a life of great fulfillment. He goes on to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. All of those things, right? A fight, a race, keeping the faith. They have prospects for the future, right? You go to war in order that you might bring peace and prosperity and safety and goods to your people, to your family, to your wife, to your children, right? Right? That you go out to war. And and Paul saw himself as a soldier of Christ going out to battle, to endure these hardships, to give everything on the battlefield for his king out of love for his king because his king so dearly loved and loves him, right? You fight for the reward. You run the race. You endure, straining your body, straining yourself with with, with blood that in the end you might receive the victor's crown. Keeping the faith has great reward, right? Faith 
is in something that you do not yet possess, right? You believe in something, right? All of those metaphors, the, the fight, the race, holding faith, they're all future-oriented, showing us that a life lived for the king in which we give everything has a great future, it has prospects, it doesn't end in emptiness. Um, there's one uh, person I like to watch sometimes talking about watches on YouTube and, you know, material possessions, not their, you know, whatever they are. He has a, a great collection of them, and, but it's always asked of him, like, what are you going to do when you're, when you're dead? Oh, I'm going to take him with him, throw him in my casket with me. It's like, really? Like, that's, that's, but that's, that's the kind of mentality of the world around us, even if we're not putting it as silly and as, as, as kind of blatant as that. You could give your life to all of these things, but there's no future. But give your life for Christ and for the cause of the gospel. And there is a wonderful future. It's a fight. It indeed is. It, it, it requires strength and, and there are hardships. It's a race. It will strain you. Holding on to faith is hard. But there is great, a great future from your king. And so, t- so Paul's own life as he comes to the end of it, can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And in some sense, the emphasis here, as if the English kind of reverses the order, but you could simply say, the fight, I finished. The race, I've completed. The faith, I've held on to it. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's not boasting in himself, because as Paul tells us elsewhere, he fought and he ran and he held fast by the grace of God by trusting and keeping his eyes on the king. And so as he has comes to the end then, and he has this prospect for the future, he says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award me on that day. There's something so sweet about these words here. Christ our Lord calls us to fight and he calls us to run. But the imagery here is the Lord himself crowning his people, right? The the Lord himself, not standing afar, but the Lord coming to his people and crowning them. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's something so wonderfully personal about this, right? As you fight, as you run, you're running for someone, not just for an idea, not just for a principle, not just for a way of life that you prefer. You're running for someone. You're fighting for someone, like a soldier going out to battle who has in the back of his mind and maybe in a locket in his, in his, in his jacket pocket here, a picture of his wife and his children, right? You're fighting for someone and you're fighting for your king who has loved you. And, and the heart of God's people, right, who would love disappearing, who say with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. That is the heart who loves his appearing, right? We long for Jesus Christ who died for me, who gave himself for me. We long to see him in his glory. And as he comes, he comes with great love and affection for his people. The one who fought, the one who ran, the one who held fast, he crowns the crown of righteousness. That's what we have to look forward to, no matter what may come, no matter what may be required of us as we give everything for the king. He will crown his people 
with everlasting life, a righteous wreath, a wreath rightly bestowed upon us, his people. And so we look forward to that day, the day of our King's return, the day when Christ cracks open the sky with great glory and power, brings the fullness of his kingdom. That day is coming. Don't know when, but by faith, we keep our eyes fixed upon that day. Our eyes are on the King and we walk by faith today and not by sight, but on that day, faith will become sight and the glory of Jesus Christ that is unending and forever will be a glory that he will invite us into. It's what the crowning imagery conveys. It's the glory he has won. It's the glory and the power and the kingdom that he has established. And he gives us a share in it because he loves us and because he has given himself for us to bring us to be where he is. What a wonderful ending chapter to the Apostle Paul's life. And in some sense, it's not really the ending of Paul's life, really, right? Even as he looked forward to this great, glorious day, a day that awaits all God's people, the day when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, those alive at his coming will look with great joy upon their Savior. Those who have died, maybe it is us, if Christ has not come in our lifetime, we will be raised from the grave to see our King with our eyes upon him, and he will come in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his splendor, and yet he will come to crown his people. And he will say to you who have run the race, who have fought the good fight, who have held fast to the faith, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the joy of your master. This is the great prospect that we have as God's people. Amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us your son. And with giving him, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Father, thank you that you have given us this revelation in your word of what is to come. The world walks in darkness. It pursues, it runs after things, but in the end, those things are empty. But Father, you've shown us what is worth living for, even what is worth dying for. And so, Father, may we give everything for King Jesus, and may we walk by faith today and not by sight. And may we be those who love his appearance on that great day when the dead are raised and all see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every tongue confesses that he indeed is Lord. We look forward to that day, and we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, in your name we pray, amen.